Father God, we uh, we're so thankful for your presence, God. For your spirit that you abide with us and in us. That when we are struggling, when we are having a hard time down in the dumps, your spirit is with us. And you're always longing to, for us to turn to you and to be filled up once again. We thank you for your spirit that fills us once again today. Wherever we were at this week, whatever we, wherever we came, whatever we came with today, we're thankful that you fill us up and remind us that you alone are our strength, our shield, and to you alone must our spirit yield. You alone are our heart's desire, God, and we long to worship you with every part of our life and every part of our being. Thank you, God. And Lord, we want to lift up some of our brothers and sisters who are struggling for different reasons. And I think of Cheryl, Patty's friend. I haven't heard an update today, but last I heard she was doing a bit better, a bit more stable, but still um, struggling, still needing prayer, st still needing a miracle, Lord. So we, we lift Cheryl to you, God, knowing that you are God all-powerful and that you can do all things because you can, because you created everything. So we ask you to touch our sister, Cheryl. May you touch her where she lays, where she sits. May you put your healing hand and breathe your healing breath into her lungs. And may she raise, rise up in health today. May the doctors, the nurses, and even those who love her be surprised, be dumbfounded by your power and your, your glory, God. And then may we all draw close to you in thankfulness. We pray the same thing for my, my friend's mother, Shirley, who's struggling with health issues, uh, kind of many all hitting at the same time. She, last I heard, was in the ICU, kind of similar, stable, but, uh, but struggling and needing prayer. So we lift up Shirley to you, asking you to touch her and with your healing hand and breathe your healing breath into her body as well. May she rise up with healing and strength that those who love her may love her for many days more, many, many years more, and decades if it be your word. In Jesus' name, bless her. Amen. We pray also for our sister Mary, as, as always, we lift her up to you, asking for your your power and your glory to touch her body with healing and strength and joy and, and peace and hope in the midst of so much health difficulties. May you give her joy in her heart and strength and healing in her body, we pray in Jesus' name. Pray for our brother 
Marty's brother, Rock, Rocky, may you continue to grant him comfort as he grieves. We pray also for Brenda, for both of them as they grieve the loss of their spouses. May you comfort them and help them through these days of grief. Would you give them your comfort and even your peace and, 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 and remind them daily that you are right there next to them and, and gather your children, your, your, those who love you. May they wrap around and gather around them to support them through these difficult days. And Lord, I pray also uh, for our church. Lord, we are at the beginning of a new year with new hopes and new desires and new expectations. We're also, though, Lord, at a, at a time that's unique to JCC right now in this beginning of 2022, just having came through a, the two years of dealing with a pandemic and, and changing locations and just, Lord, we need your guidance. We need your we need to stand upon you as our solid rock, Lord. So may you be our foundation. May you guide and direct our every step. And may we, through all of this, may you be our guiding light and our focus. As the song says, Jesus, you, Lord Jesus, are the center of it all. So may we not get distracted by details of worship, what one person likes or another. May we not, not get distracted by certain details, but may we rather be guided by your spirit, always focusing on you and being guided by your desire, your mission, your purpose for us as a body of believers. So give us favor, give us continued vision, and as you have reminded me over and over again, may we remind ourselves that it's not by any tricks up our sleeve, not by our power or by our might, but by your spirit. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' holy and mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today, um, I wanted to just give a very brief overview of what we spoke about yesterday for anybody that might be on Zoom that was not here last week. Um, I think everybody that's present uh, in the pews heard all that we talked about last week, so, but the, the big um, kind of vision casting transition that we're making this year is that we are, as of last week, starting through the next few months, starting to transition to a bilingual service where we will have somebody preaching in either English or Spanish. Most of the time it will be English as, as I am preaching uh, most of the time. And then we'll have somebody translating to the other language, most often Spanish. We will also have um, bilingual worship so that those who are in our, in the city of El Monte and our families who speak Spanish, some of us have families who primarily speak Spanish, that they, anybody can come and we can worship united as one heart, one passion, and one voice, though different languages, to our creator, our father, our God. Now we realize that that puts 
us, it, it offers some, some difficulties, but we don't look at those as um, things that we can't deal with or can't get by, but rather things that God will help us navigate and will help us to work through. We also talked last week about how, though we are a small congregation, as God did with Gideon and the 300, God can use us for mighty, mighty things. So with that knowledge and that truth, we look forward to 2022 as we breach the walls of the, of the, of the church building, get out into the community, love our neighbor in English and Spanish and whatever language else that God would call us to, to minister in. Um, so with that said, I'm going to pray a quick prayer for our brother Rick as he uh, brings the word of God today, and then we will be blessed uh, by the word as God speaks through our brother Rick. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you um, for your word that you saw it fit to to not leave us in the dark, to not leave us confused about everything, but rather you told us how we were created, how you want us to live, that we are your children, and that there is a hope and a future for every one of your children, and that we have a calling to live into, to be a part of your plan to make all things new. I pray, Lord God, that as, as my brother Rick brings the word today, that you will anoint him with your spirit, that he would, as he preaches, it would not be his word, but it would be your power and your glory speaking through him, and that our hearts and minds and ears would be receptive to be transformed and renewed by your love, by your good word, by the good news, and by your grace and mercy. Bless us this day. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, praise the Lord, saints, those here in person and those online in Zoom land. Um, it is my pleasure and honor to be here today. Um, and uh, thank you, Pastor Johnny, uh, for wonderful prayer and encouragement um, and the opportunity to share in, in ministry um, amongst the saints. Um, these are not times and, and opportunities that I take lightly. Um, and I, I absolutely pray, you know, God's word come forth uh, and, and God be glorified. Uh, let me say that. Uh, let me start with this, though. So it's, it's, I often think it's quite coincidental that these are the Sundays each year that I find that I'm here, which is uh, Happy Martin Luther King weekend for everybody. Um, that's typically uh, when, when you uh, will sort of hear my voice. Um, and it really has been sort of uh, random and coincidental. It's not anything that we've necessarily planned out. Um, and I just I chuckle to myself just in terms of, um, it, it's an opportunity where even some of the diversity that we have here amongst our body, um, amongst our congregation. Uh, we, we just get some salient opportunities to engage that a bit um, from some of the traditions that we, we come from. And, and so I'll share a bit from my own tradition um, coming out of uh, 
the African-American church and the tradition in terms of engaging uh, our society and our community um, and how that can look today in honor of Martin Luther King Day. Um, and it's an opportunity and an honor to do that as well. Um, but I'd like to start with, with this. Um, I had a very interesting conversation about a month ago with a complete random stranger. And uh, it sticks in my mind. I, as soon as I had this conversation, I got on the phone with, with my wife. I'm like, you'll never guess this conversation that I had. So I had begun traveling again and I was up in uh, Northern California um, and I had about a good 50 minute to an hour ride in the car with the Uber driver. Um, and so what do you do when you haven't, you know, had an opportunity to talk to somebody in a, in a couple of years in person and you're starved for that, you milk it. Um, and so I, I think he was probably just as eager to talk to somebody as I was. Uh, and so, you know, we started off talking about uh, kids, you know, he asked me about do it if I had any, I asked him, you know, if he had any and he, he is a little older than I am. And so he talked to me about uh, taking care of his grandkids, helping his daughters, you know, take care and shuttle around his grandkids to different sporting events or what have you. Um, and as the conversation went on, uh, he, he uh, typically I try to get a sense for where people are from because I've traveled around so much. I've lived a lot of different places. I try to match their accent. I try to get a sense for, okay, do I know where this person might be from? Um, and I couldn't match his, you know, he, he, he had an interesting way of speaking, but it wasn't, you know, he didn't sound like he was from a different country or anything, um, but just an interesting way of speaking. So I asked him, you know, are, are you from here? Are you from uh, this area of the city? Um, he said, no, 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 I, I've actually, I'm from a small town in West Texas. Um, and for those of you who know me, I actually lived for a bit in Texas and traveled that state quite a bit. Um, so he named the town and I'm like, oh no, I'm familiar with it. He was surprised um, that anybody would know this, his small town. Um, and he began to describe the town to me. It's like, you know, in this town, uh, nobody speaks English. Um, my family's been there for generations and everybody speaks Spanish and it's Spanish culture hundred percent. And he's like, and, and you know, I grew up speaking Spanish and I learned English, you know, only, only as an adult and when I went to school, um, he told me how his father then learned English only when he went into the military to serve in World War II. Um, he told me a bit about his town. I said, wow, what was it like to grow up there? Um, and then he said, well, actually, um, I, I ended up leaving the country um, in, in 1969. And I always notice how people frame things. It's like, he didn't say he took a trip. He didn't say he moved. He said he left the country. So I looked for opportunities to sort of circle back around um, after chatting a bit. And I said, so uh, 1969, that was an interesting year. What happened? And then he started to tell me in terms of, oh, it was the Vietnam War um, and I didn't want to go to Vietnam. And so I left the country. I'm a draft dodger is what he said. Um, and the way he said he was a draft dodger, uh, he did not say that with pride. He actually, it sounded like he had kind of had some feelings about that. Um, and of course, me being a bit of a therapist, so I try to listen without judgment. Um, I said, oh, wow, well, what, what was that like for you? I mean, he went on to tell me a bit more in terms of, well, you know, um, I never thought I was coming back to this country. Um, I was there and I was there for it was 25 years before I came back. My family kept trying to get me to come back um, and I just didn't want to come back. And I think I could understand in terms of, well, that, yeah, you could go to prison for dodging the draft. I could imagine that. Um, but then he actually started to tell me a bit about what was going on in his family. Um, and he started to tell me about his father. 
And he said his father, believe it or not, uh, had been in World War II, went into the military, um, and ended up in the Battle of Okinawa. And when he said the Battle of Okinawa, he's been trying to describe this place to me, but then I, I actually said to him, actually, I used to live there. I grew up there. That was my childhood home. Um, I could tell you some things about how difficult that battle was because as a kid, I would often be on the playground and metal detectors had come out at that time and we'd be digging and we'd dig up ordinances from the war. They're on the playground because it was uh, shelled so heavily. They were everywhere. And unfortunately, you know, kids would dig up some that would explode and there'd be injuries. Um, and so there's another point of connection between us and he began to tell me a little bit more then um, about his father's experience in World War II. Um, and he said, yeah, my dad was the only person who was surviving and uninjured in particular a battle that they had in Okinawa. Um, and he described how his dad charged up a hill and uh, all of his uh, company was basically wounded or killed. Um, and he made it all the way without injury before his gun jammed. And then it became a hand-to-hand -hand combat situation uh, with the soldiers that came at him with bayonets and he actually uh, bayoneted them back. But then he ran back because his gun was jammed. And of course, all of his uh, fellow soldiers are, are now injured and taken out of the picture. So all of these uh, machine guns and rifles are actually trained on him. None of the bullets hit him. And so he made it back, got another rifle and ran back into the battle and continued the fight. Um, and basically was uninjured through the entire thing. Um, and he ended up being a Medal of Honor recipient for that from Harry Truman. And he said, uh, my dad is actually uh, quite known in the military uh, because from that he, he continued in the military and uh, he's in documentaries and there are books written about my dad. And uh, he, he began to explain a little bit about that. And I began to hear then, oh, it must've been very, very difficult then for the draft dodger to be the son of the war hero and what that must have been like between him and his father, um, what, which in, eventually ended up with him actually living in Mexico for over 25 years. He said his father eventually passed away. Um, and even then he wasn't coming back to the US. Uh, and I said, well, what, what actually got you back here? Because here we are. He said, well, my mother was on her deathbed. And for, for you know, years, she's been trying to get him to come back and he wouldn't. Um, and because she was on her deathbed, I agreed to make one visit, just a visit to say goodbye to my mom and then I was gonna go back. Um, and he said, and I came and I brought my kids. He had kids in Mexico. And so he brought, brought the family. He said, and, and in conversation with his mom on her deathbed, she made him promise to actually stay in the US. And he said, I can't make that promise, but the promise I will make is, I'll stay here as long as you're alive uh, and then I'll have to go back, um, but I'll be here as long as you hang on, mom. Um, and I said, well, how long did she hang on and what brought you back eventually? He's like, she recovered. <laughs> She's still alive. <laughs> I'm held to this promise and I've been here since the nineties. Uh, and we laughed a bit about that. We laughed a bit about that. Um, but it's so interesting because from that conversation and, and you know, we had an hour to talk through that. Um, he then told me that because he was here in the nineties and his father had passed on, the president at the time, Bill Clinton actually invited all of the Medal, Medal of Honor recipients from World War II to the White House. And because of course his father had passed, he was the one and only son 
So he actually had to go and represent his deceased father at the White House. He said, and, and that brought up all sorts of feelings for him um, because he said he felt small around all of these other families who are Medal of Honor recipients. Um, and he said he just wanted to drift into the background, just become you know, furniture in the room because he had this struggle internally around that. Um, and he said, and even with that, uh, the families wouldn't let him do that. The other military families wouldn't let him because what they, what they learned from hearing about his father's life was that his father's father, his grandfather, had actually fought with Pancho Villa against the US. So this was in 1915, 1916. Um, and it's so interesting because these military families who, who were celebrating their fathers, their deceased fathers, they were legacy families, which means their grandfathers had been military people who had fought against Pancho Villa, the US in, in Mexico, that, that fight. And so that was a real novelty for them to actually have here in the same room, uh, like two generations of people, his generation, the first one had actually fought against their grandfathers and then their, their fathers had fought on the same side. And so they, he became like a celebrity and they wanted them to sign all the books that were going on. And he's like, and I never could tell them that I was the draft dodger. It's like, I just, I felt so small about that. And I just carried that conflicting feeling. That was our conversation, you know, and I explained to him, you know, I'm a military kid as well. Um, you know, I grew up military, absolutely. And yeah, uh, folks wanted me to go to the military and I, I chose a different route as well. Um, and, and that can be sometimes difficult for folks in the military to understand. So, you know, I, I could sort of relate to some of what he was saying. Um, but after that conversation, you know, uh, it, it stuck with me. It really stayed with me for a bit in terms of, wow, here's somebody who, uh, because of, you know, his, I call it his citizenship in the US. There were some expectations that he failed to meet. It shaped his life based on those decisions and that citizenship where he actually ended up away from family, away from everybody who he had known for 25 years without plans to ever return. So that citizenship issue, it, it shaped his, his public life, but it also shaped his private life because he carries around to this day that, that sense of shame, that, that peace there. Uh, because his father is such a lauded patriot, and yet he himself, uh, he sees himself as the draft dodger. And, and I can only imagine that those were the words that his father used against him. And, you know, I, I hold that, um, and I wish I could tell you it was a sort of a happy ending where, where sort of we could, you know, talk about things together on the end of that car ride, and, and that was resolved for him, uh, but it wasn't. Those are deep, deep wounds. Uh, but stayed with me for a bit. And, and as I wrestle with um, scripture and, and, and what we'll actually get in today, I hold on to that because um, what we're actually going to be looking at today um, is citizenship, but our heavenly citizenship, because scripture actually addresses how, where we are rooted, our citizenship, where our home is, is supposed to actually shape and direct our lives. And I just had this conversation with an individual who was a complete stranger. And I think probably because of the anonymity of the, of the complete stranger dynamic, he was actually able to sort of talk to me in ways where he may not have talked to anybody else. Um, and I don't think it was necessarily because I'm a great therapist or anything, but I think it's just the moment, right? Sometimes God just arranges those things in um, how his world has been shaped by issues of citizenship um, but what God has in store for us in terms of our citizenship being in heaven, there's just a lot of hope 
with that. Because what we know from Romans chapter 8, there, there's not condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus when we look back on our histories, no matter what those histories are. When we look in Philippians, Paul says he forgets those things which are behind and he presses forward for the goal, the things that are ahead. That's how he moves forward. And, and I think scripture gives us um, great hope because I think we can all look back and, and be reminded too often of the places where we failed, the places where we have shame, and, and that can become a hindrance, a, a source that prevents us from truly living into what God would have for us. Um, and so Paul found it really important to actually address heavenly citizenship. And so we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, where Paul is actually addressing that issue. And, and, and I wish if I could, uh, <laughs> if I ever catch a, a, an Uber and he shows up again, I know it's a God-appointed one, because this is one that I, I, I sort of wish uh, would have come to mind in that moment, but I don't think it was probably meant to be in that moment. It's probably meant for me to do a lot of listening, to be honest. Uh, but God always has something. God always has something for us, no matter what our situations are. So if you would turn to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 17 through 21. Philippians 3, 17 through 21, it says, Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me, this is Paul speaking, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Amen. So I want to grapple with you um, around how the issue of citizenship shapes us, but how it actually shaped the church at Philippi and why Paul found it important to actually address heavenly citizenship with this particular congregation at this time. So a little bit of a historical context that I think is actually really important as we, as we think about this together. Um, Philippians, the church at Philippi was a very interesting church. Um, Paul and Silas uh, were the people who actually founded this church and it was actually established as a Roman colony. It was actually in Macedonia near Greece and it was the first church established, the first Christian church established in Europe on the European continent. And what's interesting about the establishment of this church, if you actually read and look at Acts 16, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull some scriptures from Acts 16 to give you a bit of the histor historical context of this church a bit. Acts 16 actually tells us that Paul and Silas actually set out on their missionary journey and they actually intended to go to some other places in order to establish churches there. But it says that the Holy Spirit actually blocked them from going there. And, and in a dream, Paul experienced a, a man saying, come over, to where we are. And that's how Paul and Silas ended up um, in the area. And that's how the church at Philippi was the first church to actually be established. It was truly something that God caused to happen because Paul was oriented in a different direction. And so in the establishment of this church, what, what's, what's also very, very interesting to consider is right around that time in that first century, um, there was this prayer that, that the Jewish men would actually pray 
um, on a daily basis. And, and it exists to this day, but it started way back in that time. Um, and the prayer goes like this. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And that may sound horrific to us, right? But, but I think we should understand what, what they were actually talking about. So the, the Jews in praying this prayer, they're basically saying, under the law, Jewish men actually have this huge responsibility to obey all of these laws that God has set before. Women have to obey these amount, maybe not as much as the men, but they have to obey this amount. And if you're a Gentile or if you're a slave residing amongst the Jews, you have to obey this amount, right? So they, they were really sort of praising God for, thank you for giving us the, the greater responsibility amongst the law. That's the spirit of that prayer. Of course, though, we can see how that prayer could actually lead to some other things, right? Because now we can look at how, how hierarchies and, and how value and devalue can creep in because that's the nature of sin in the world that we have. And so by the time you know, th this prayer has sort of rooted through and, and become uh, commonplace amongst Jewish men, uh, this was well known. So thanking God that God had not made them a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And then we look at the founding of this first church in Europe and why God sent Paul and Silas on a beeline there. Because what we actually see in terms of the founding members of this church are three people. The first person we read in about chapter 16 is a lady named Lydia, Jewish lady. Paul and Silas went out to speak. They didn't have a synagogue in this particular town, so the Jewish people actually met by the river. Typically the women would meet there and they begin to share the word of Christ. Lydia says in, in verses 14 through 16, um, a certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed among us. Convert number one. A woman. Right after that, it goes into one day, then they were going to the place of prayer, still in Philippi, and we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And then it goes through this process where she would make this money for her, her slave owners by proclaiming these prophecies or these fortune telling situations. She would follow Paul and Silas and she would cry out the, these things from the demon. Um, and Paul and Silas eventually grew tired of that, and, and Paul turned around and, and cast the demon out of her. Verse 18, she kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour, which then got them in trouble with the people who actually owned this slave girl because they had no money now. They had no source of income. So then they actually level a false charge against Paul and Silas, get them thrown into prison, thrown into the jail there in Philippi. Um, and while they're in jail and have gone through that mistreatment, uh, they are singing praises and the other prisoners are listening to them. And just like God, an earthquake happens, all the chains fall off, all the prison doors open and the jailer, a Gentile, thinks that all the prisoners have now escaped and he's about to draw a sword and kill himself because this is deep humiliation. And right before he does that, Paul cries out, don't kill yourself, we're all here. And that turns into an opportunity of a great witness to this man in his household. 
And it says, then the man, the jailer, brought them outside and said, sir, what must I do to be saved? They answered, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. In that same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. And then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. Convert number three, a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. This is the founding of the first church in Europe. Contrary to the tendency that we have as people to devalue certain folks based on that prayer that was being prayed, that started to be prayed at that time. And I don't think that, that, that those three individuals who, whom God clearly selected to be founding members of the church of Philippi was a mistake. I think it shows us the mind of Christ in terms of how we are not to have hierarchies and how we are not to devalue and esteem others. In, in, in God's view, there is no hierarchy. We are all level ground before the, Christ, before the cross and we need Jesus Christ equally. Yet there's one more thing I wanna pull out of Acts 16, which relates to citizenship and sets us up to understand a bit about why Paul is bringing up in, in his letter to the Philippian church later. It goes on from there, after the jailer now has been uh, baptized and is now a believer, where the people in power of Philippi who have thrown Paul and Silas in jail has, has now chastised them, whipped them, and, and now they want them to leave. And, and what they find out from, from the jailers is that Paul is actually a Roman citizen, which was a huge no-no in terms of how he should have been treated then because Philippi is a Roman colony. And the magistrates now are fearful and they come to him and they say, can, can you leave? And, and they try to keep it hush hush. And Paul uses that opportunity then in verse 38, it says the police reported these words to the magistrates that Paul was a Roman citizen. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. And, and what, what historians now, think about this is this is actually the leverage that allowed the, the very, you know, brand new church in Philippi to actually have a bit of protection from the powers that be from these magistrates, because what they did not want was Paul to actually now say to Rome, here's what happened. And now they have a tremendous guilt on their head, something that they truly have to pay for. So Paul actually held this leverage over them based on his Roman citizenship and their, their mistreatment of him. And this is how the church at Philippi uh, had, had a little bit of protection as they got going in this, as they started to flourish as a church. This brings us to the book of Philippians then. As this church then began to, to uh, take on the life in Christ as, as converts were made and as people joined the church, um, it was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And, and one can imagine, it's not, not hard to imagine that part, part of what maybe their narrative or history included was, well, you know, we, we have this protection. We're not protected from everything, but you know, from the powers that be, they, they give us a little slack because of this issue of Paul's citizenship with Rome. And, and that's allowed us then some protection in the midst of all of this. And, and just in case they would get it twisted, I think now Paul takes an opportunity in writing a letter to them to say, 
you know, that citizenship in Rome is actually not the source of your protection. Your citizenship is actually in heaven. Your citizenship is actually in heaven. That's what actually directs your life. And so what Paul was actually doing was Paul was actually leveraging and using his Roman citizenship to serve the purposes of his heavenly citizenship, not the other way around, which I think is a really important thing for us to chew on and continue to chew on in our society today. Churches today, obviously, um, we can look back at our history, even within this country, and, and you know we've done some wonderful things and seen how God has shown up, but we can also look at our history and see how the church has sat on the sidelines and how the church has actually served the status quo behind wicked things that were going on in the society. And so when we look at things like Martin Luther King Day today, uh, uh, tomorrow being the day that it is, you know, we can see how uh, Martin Luther King, a preacher of the gospel, actually spoke truth to power in trying to actually address, here are the things that the church typically has been complicit in. He actually said the most segregated hour within the country of a country of segregation was Sunday. He actually said the most segregated school was Sunday school around color lines, around racial lines. And he actually took that gospel of Jesus Christ and actually engaged it in such a way where he actually engaged the society and engaged people across color lines to actually move forward to create what he called the beloved community. The very thing that, that God gives us a picture of in terms of what is all of this about? God is trying to actually create something amongst his people, amongst believers, that actually crosses racial lines, crosses ethnic lines, crosses language barriers. And when we're looking at that, that image that we see in, in Revelation chapter 7, it's of all the nations and all the tongues there glorifying God together. And, and scripture consistently gives us a picture of unity amongst the diversity in that way. But it's so easy to, to, to not do that because it's difficult. I think we all are dealing with things that we've been taught, ways that we view other people. Um, and these are not e easy things to do, but these are the very things that God calls us to do. And God gives us his, his power through his spirit in order to do it. One of the things that is maybe a, a, a little bit of a challenge, I think, um, for us even, even in today, um, I, I think we sometimes uh, envision, yes, it would be wonderful if we could just manifest that unity um, that Christ has called us to, to manifest. Um, and then we, we take the step of saying, well, if anybody who's different from us wants to come in, they can come on in. And sometimes miss the fact that actually maybe we have to get out there. Maybe we have to figure out how we can get invited into different spaces as well. It's a reciprocal process. Um, it, it's hard work and it's uncomfortable work, uh, but these are the very things that, that Christ calls us to do. I want us to look at um, John chapter 17. Don't have to turn there, I'll, I'll just reference it and read it to you. Um, but this is the prayer that Christ prayed for the disciples as he was going to suffering and to the cross. And it's also the prayer that Christ prayed for us while he was praying for his disciples. And if we wanted to ever sort of grapple with, you know, what, what is this? Why, why are we stressing unity? Why, why, why are we looking at unity? Because Christ actually emphasized it. And, and in, in John chapter 17, verse 11, this is, this is Jesus praying to God, the Father, 
for the disciples. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. Skip down to verse 20. I ask not only on behalf of these, the disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. That includes us. That they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It is the tendency of the world to divide across cultural lines, to divide across language barriers, to divide and to devalue. And this is the very reason why God's vision and mission to roll everything up in Christ as one in unity is such a powerful witness to the world. And, and there, there's a saying that I like, which is, you know, the light shines brightest where it's darkest, you know? And so when we look at those contexts where the vision is high, when we look at our society today, when we see such strife and tension, these are the very places where God would want to put his people who could actually demonstrate something different. These are the very places where the light needs to actually be because this is the witness to the world around us. So we have a huge task. We have, we have a, a big ask, I think, from God in this, but God absolutely prepares and equips us to do it. He's given us his Holy Spirit. So coming back to Philippians, I think from Philippians 3, the verses that we've looked at, um, I think what we can take from the actual church at Philippi in terms of what Paul is talking about, if we actually just go through the passage here, there's some things that their heavenly citizenship actually starts to manifest in them or should manifest in them based on the scripture. Um, and, and if we look at the historical context, we can maybe appreciate it a bit because here are the things that the Philippian believers um, dealt with based on their behavior because they were citizenship, citizens of heaven, even though many of them were Roman citizens, even though many of them could have even been Jews, but they also, they had this heavenly citizenship, which was primary. And as a result of that, it started to shape their public life in this way. Philippi, a Roman colony, had all sorts of pagan gods, all sorts of festivals, but they were also a Roman colony, which means some of those festivals and some of that worship was directed towards Caesar, the emperor. The Philippian believers then, when everybody would gather for these festivals, would be noticeably absent. And, and it's, it's not like, oh, we're, we're Sally today. Everybody was present at these things. That's the nature of society at that time. And so if you're absent on a consistent basis, it is very noticeable. And you might think, well, live and let live. That's not how it was for them. Basically, they knew, and this is how people believe, if it's a celebration to this God or this deity, or if it's a celebration to the, to the Caesar, if you're not showing up, then might that invite the wrath of this God onto our town? Might that invite the wrath of Caesar onto us? And so they put pressure on Christians to capitulate to these practices. And of course, Christians drew lines and said, no, no, we actually worship Christ and him crucified. And that became some of the tension, some of the issues and some of the things that the society at large was actually trying to actually leverage Christians to pull them back in in these ways. 
even though they had some protection against the powers that be, it was their fellow neighbors who then they still had to contend with. So they still dealt with the persecution and the adversity. Some of the things that they actually did do based on then Jesus prayer that we just looked at was they, they Jews who were believers and Gentiles who were believers had to figure out how do we develop and cultivate and demonstrate this unity? How do we become a community that's gonna cross these cultural lines, cross these language lines even, and actually demonstrate and live out what Christ has actually called us to. And they went to the task of doing that. And Paul tells us a little earlier in, in, in Philippians third, uh, chapter three, the, the, the pressing that he goes ahead, not that he's attained you know, death and resurrection and all that Christ has had, but he presses on, which means there's a striving for this that has to happen. And God gives us the spirit to do so. And this is very much what the church at Philippi was engaged in. And so Paul's letter to them was meant to be an encouragement on one half, on one hand to do that, but it's also meant to just remind them that, hey, you know, you live in this custom in this tradition, Rome particularly, where Rome has this tendency to always try to exalt itself or the emperor or the Caesar. And so Rome would do these things like, um, they had a great, I mean, they had the, the, the best PR probably in the history of the world. Every time the Caesar would build something, every time Rome would conquer some new territory, there was always this big media campaign of the day to exalt and praise Caesar for it. Thank you, Caesar, for building this, for putting money towards this public works project. Caesar is our Lord and Savior. These are, these are actual things that, that historians have dug up. This is the language that they would use amongst the empire. Caesar being Lord and our Savior. Paul took those opportunities then to speak power to truth. It's not Caesar in Rome that's your Lord and Savior. It's Jesus Christ who is true Lord and Savior. Paul took every opportunity to actually speak the, that truth to hearers who, when Paul would say Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, they knew that Paul was referencing that means Caesar is not Lord and Savior. We could see how Paul was destined for his, for his end, I guess, by the Roman uh, sword based on the message that he was saying. And, and his hearers understood that because they were Romans. They understood what Paul was saying was actually saying, no, no, God, Jesus Christ is actually above Caesar. It's very interesting to me too, that if, if we are supposed to be guided by our heavenly citizenship and all that that means, and everything else is supposed to serve that. Uh, I would ask us maybe to, to pause and maybe pull one more thing from, from this brief passage. And that is try to grapple with what citizenship actually meant in that time versus what it means today. I, I'll, I go back to my conversation that I had with, with my anonymous Uber driver. Um, and, and when I asked the question to myself, wow, uh, he, he's, He's a part of this country in a very interesting way. His citizenship is very interesting. And then I think, yeah, he lived as an expat, expatriate outside of the country of, of his home, uh, but somehow he, he ended up back here. Somehow he ended up home. And that is the exact opposite of what they think about citizenship back in Roman times. And, and here's what I mean, Rome, was a vast empire. It had this main city, Rome. 
And if everybody wanted to go back home to Rome, Rome would be overtaxed, overcrowded. There's just not Rome. They had experienced that. So Rome had a very different policy through its empire. It created colonies. And Philippi was one of these colonies where it would actually send its soldiers, send its people to these colonies to live the rest of their days. They were there forever. And their, their purpose was not just don't come back home. That's really the, the main purpose was bring Roman culture to every part of the empire, every part of the world. And so the dress was Roman, the speech was Roman, the, the way that they did commerce and business was Roman, the, the legal system, the judicial system were, were Roman. This is what they understood citizenship to mean. If you're Roman citizens, then what that means is you go out into the world, you bring that culture with you to the world, and that is what's supposed to happen. And that then is an opportunity for Paul to say, you are citizens of heaven. Keep that same frame. What we are to bring to the world, because God is trying to transform it, God is doing something in the world, is God's principles. What God would actually want. And the witness to the world is that unity. The witness is how we live publicly and privately. And that is what's supposed to go out into the world. And I do think if we can grapple with that a bit, I think it, it does shape how we, how we do life. And so when I think back on my own religious tradition coming out of the African-American church and, and looking at what Martin Luther King's tradition was and how he actually engaged the society, oftentimes if, if we believe that, hey, the world is a really bad place, and you know what, we're, we're gonna stay put, not engage that, and someday God's gonna come and take us out of here and we're gonna be in heaven. That can result in some things that are not so wonderful. Instead, if, if, we, if we hold the idea that, you know, God actually wants us to be in the world, but not of the world, and we take what it means to actually engage and be in the world seriously, how we speak truth to power, how we live our lives, how we create the beloved community, and how we demonstrate life amongst our believers, that actually counteraction goes contrary to the way that the world does things, which is going to divide itself across ethnic, cultural, and racial and language lines, then, then, then God is doing something that's really a testament and a testimony. So as I, as I you know, take opportunity on, on this day you know, each year, um, I do think it's one of the things that um, God truly wants to continue to drive home to us even today. Um, we have a tendency to still be segregated and separated. Maybe it's a little different than it was in the 60s and the 50s, but it just manifests in new ways. And I think we do have opportunity and God gives us opportunity to, to get outside of um, the walls where we feel most comfortable and stretch out and, and combine and, and join hands with other believers. Um, and they may be of a different culture, they may speak a different language, but this is the work of the cross. This is actually the witness to the world that Christ is actually trying to bring forth. And, and what better place to do that than in a country where we got some division going on here today. Um, it may be different than it was 30, 40 years ago, but hey, it's just taking a new form and it's just as virulent. And so if we can do those things, God would be glorified and magnified. They would have to recognize that the people who do this, are, they must be coming from a different place. What empowers them to do that? And we begin to engage them in that process of it is the God we serve that empowers us to do this as we look to God together, even across our differences. That, that picture of, of all tongues in Revelation and all nations worshiping God together, um, that, that's what it's about. That's what it's about.
I'll, I'll leave you with this. Um, I, I do think, you know, it, it's a bit of a, a paradigm shift a lot of times to, to maybe think that, hey, we, we're, we're not necessarily, you know, destined to, to leave this place and, and God's going to take us out of here and we'll be in heaven with him. That, that's true. Please don't hear me to say that we're not going to heaven. We are. We are. Um, but when you look at how, how Jews read the Old Testament, when you look at how Jewish Christians read the Old and the New Testament, they're not emphasizing God taking us out of here and going to heaven forever. They're actually saying God actually comes down to earth, creates a new heaven and an earth and a new humanity, and he dwells amongst his people. That's what the whole temple idea is about, God coming down and dwelling amongst his people, and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so when we grapple with the fact that Scripture actually gives us much more to chew on in terms of someday God coming back, Jesus' second return, is actually going to be marked by him establishing in all fullness the righteousness and the justice that he speaks about in Isaiah chapter 9 on earth, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And when we look at Revelation chapter 21, when it's talking about the new Jerusalem and all those nations and all those tongues are there, it's saying the new Jerusalem is coming down to earth. It's not that we're going up to heaven, it's coming down to earth. God has a plan for this. So how we then engage each other and how we actually then uh, treat one another, how we, how we actually manifest God's power here on earth is key. It's key. I like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, it talks about the coming of, of Christ when he comes back. And it says, the dead arise in Christ first, and then the people who remain are, we're, we're transformed so that we meet him in the air. And I know a lot of times we think, and so he takes us to heaven. But, but when you look at the Greek word in terms of what that means, the coming, the second coming, that's parousia, and that's a word that typically they used to talk about a general or a king coming back to his people. And what happens when the king is coming back to his people, the people get excited. And the people go out to meet the king while he's coming. And then they all come back together. And so when you look at Judges, when you look at Jephthah and his daughter, and you wonder, that's a weird story. But the whole point is, when Jephthah came back from battle to his people, his daughter ran out to meet him. When you look at Jesus in the triumphal entry, when the people are welcoming Jesus, they come out to actually meet Jesus as he's coming into the city. That's the idea in the first century. And so when you look at these passages when, from, from the Jewish mind and from, from the believers of that time, when it's looking like, wow, we, we get a chance to, to be transformed in our bodies so that we can actually go and meet Jesus as he's coming and he comes back and he establishes everything. It fits. It fits. And so we, we, I don't think we have to throw out good stuff that, that you know, we, we've learned and that we've cherished, but I think it's really helpful when we start to worship, read scripture, sing praises to our God with folks who come from different traditions, come from different backgrounds, because it starts to fill out this gem, the different facets of the diamond that, that we have, which is the kingdom of God. And we get to appreciate different aspects of what God has actually put in store and, and, and said and has for us. So that being said, uh, this really is the last thing I want to say, and, and it's a quote that I want to finish with, um, and it's taken from 1956 and 1957, and it's something that Martin Luther King Jr. actually said, because he grappled with this idea of how do we take the scriptures and the gospel and transform it into our society and speak truth to the very powers that are seeking to divide people. And 
This is an excerpt from his, his speech called Facing the Challenge of a New Age. He says, the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of a beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. The type of love that I stress here is not eros, a sort of aesthetic or romantic love, or philia, a sort of reciprocal love between personal friends, but it is agape, which is understanding goodwill for all men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. It is the love of God working in the lives of men. This is the love that may well be the salvation of our civilization. And I would just add one tweak, the salvation and the redemption of this world that God so desires based on that beloved community. Who is the beloved Jesus Christ? What does he call this to unity in the midst of our diversity? As we go forward into the week, I just pray that we can hold on to this and grapple with this and also appreciate that we as a body have an opportunity then to begin to develop new connections and new relationships with people who might speak different languages, who might come from different traditions. And you know what? They're, they're not guests in our house. We are actually all one family. It's exciting what God is actually doing. So the opportunities I know absolutely are going to present some challenges. And as we continue to grapple with those things, God will continue to bless us. Uh, but let us not lose heart. God has given us a mighty spirit. Amen. Amen. Let me close this out with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for opportunities, Lord, to see how great you are. To understand, Lord, that you've brought us from a mighty long way, Lord. But even in the midst of it, we live in a time, Lord, where the world rebels against the light that you've placed in it. Lord, you desire us to be your witnesses, Lord, during a time, Lord, where as we continue to live out our heavenly citizenship here on earth, the world will continue to rebel against it, Lord. But we know, Lord, that we have a citizenship in heaven, and we know, Lord, that Christ will come. And Lord, just like those saints in Philippi who, who understood that Citizenship means go and bring the culture to the world. They also understood that, and, and, and when that world resists and gives them a hard time, they know that the word gets back to the king and the king shows up and the king establishes peace and trades their vulnerability for security once again, Lord. And we, we, we hold on to that, Lord, knowing that upon your return, you'll make all things right, Lord. So help us to endure, help us to be faithful, Lord knowing with full faith and confidence, Lord, that upon your return, all things will be made right, Lord. And in the meanwhile, you give us strength. Bless us all as we go into the highways and byways, Lord. Help strangers not remain strangers, Lord. Help us to reach out, Lord, in new creative ways, even if we have distancing that has to be there because we're in a season of pandemic, Lord. Help us to be creative, help us to look for those ways, whether it be online, whether it just be by phone or what have you, where we can continue to be the church, continue to have your word go forth, because we know that as your word goes forth, it doesn't return into your void. And we thank you for your faithfulness to your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.